Okay, we're going to read Romans 1, verses 16 through 32. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your word has many, many warnings and much to be learned and understood about the nature of man, Father. I pray that you would make us wise to heed your warnings and to understand the nature of man, Father. I pray for Tom as he comes to preach, for our ears as we hear, that you would give him truth to share and make our hearts receptive to it, that we might know you more truly as you are and glorify you as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Thank you, brother. Lord willing, next week we will get back to 1 Corinthians, but at the congregational meeting a few weeks ago, we talked about unity, community, and truth. In a brief message at that meeting called Five Truths About Truth, I mentioned that we would be talking more in the near future about the current militant assault on every notion of absolute truth and why that assault changes absolutely nothing about our message or our mission as the people of God. This morning is the first follow-up on that intention. In the first three verses of the passage my brother Kerry just read from Romans 1, Paul focuses on two things about God that have been, he says, have been clearly revealed. 
The first is God's righteousness, and the second is God's wrath. He tells us that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith, and that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, he doesn't tell us up front how the wrath of God is revealed. He tells us against what the wrath of God is revealed. He then proceeds to tell us how. And the how is that God's wrath is revealed as he gives men over to their sin. In both cases, Paul is talking about a revealing of something that God has put on display not only in propositional terms through the proclamation of the word, but in and through human beings. This passage and the entire book of Romans is fundamentally about how people become the bearers and displayers, God's showcase of God's own righteousness. Now we might expect Paul to say that God's righteousness is revealed through God's wrath. And that would be a well-grounded expectation if you look at the passages in the Bible that have to do with the coming final judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God against sin and sinners. His righteous hatred of sin will absolutely be displayed in undeniable terms on that last day. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not the revelation of God's wrath that Paul has in mind here. Immediately after declaring that he, Paul, is not ashamed of the gospel because it, that gospel message, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the pagan, to the Gentile, he then says that in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As God brings men and women and children to trust in the, the perfect person and atoning death of Jesus Christ, and as those redeemed saints walk in faith, just as they were redeemed through faith, God's righteousness is revealed through the impact of the gospel in and through the lives of those people. After introducing that truth, Paul then tables it momentarily in order to focus on the second revealing, the revealing of God's wrath. And he stays on that second point all the way to chapter 3, verse 21, where he then again picks up, he comes full circle back to the first revelation that he talked about here in chapter 1. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump past that whole indictment of humanity in 118 to 320 and go to 321 for a second and listen. Paul comes back around and he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's a different word. Instead of just revealed, it's put on display. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that is the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. The righteousness of God for all those who believe through faith in Christ. 
For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of God, which is revealed or made known in the gospel, is put on display in the world through every believer's faith in the one whom that gospel proclaims. So the effect of the gospel believed is the righteousness of God received and put on display on earth, in history, right here, right now, in and, in and through redeemed human beings, us who belong to Christ. But how is the wrath of God revealed here and now? We know how it's going to be revealed later. How is the wrath of God revealed now? And how is it revealed in and through human beings? Paul's answer is that the wrath of God against men, humanity, because of our sin is revealed now on earth through the giving over of men by God to the full expression of that ungodliness and unrighteousness. To put it another way, God's wrath against sin and sinners is being revealed on earth right now as he lets human, sinful human beings have their own way. Now let's see how that plays out in the passage. Verses 18 to 21 present the core of the indictment. And then the remaining verses of chapter 1 expand on that indictment and they present the judgment of God against humans because the, the indictment is true. Here's the core, here's the heart of God's indictment in verses 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Remember that, that statement, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we know that it's truth suppression and not, not ignorance of the truth because of this, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been what? Clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. Look at the wording here. Evident, evident, clearly seen, understood so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not, did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. The first thing we need to notice is who is being indicted here. And the answer is all of us, all of mankind. When Paul refers to men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, he's not merely talking about some men. Uh, it's interesting to me that so many, so many expositors say that, that chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 apply to pagans and then chapter 2 applies to Jews. Mm, they need to keep reading. God's indictment here is against all mankind and you will never rightly interpret a single paragraph of the first five chapters of Romans if you don't get that. The condemning indictment in Romans 1-3 through is against all mankind, and that becomes crystal clear when Paul brings the, this indictment to its conclusion in chapter 3, verses 9-20, through 20, which our brother Keith 
pointed out to us in his very clear presentation of the gospel at the park last Sunday. Here's just a sampling from that conclusion of God's indictment. What then? Are we Jews better than those pagan Gentiles? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, and listen, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now let me ask you, can Paul be any clearer about how many righteous people there are? It's fascinating to me that in chapter 2, some expositors look at where it says, where it says, the two, it talks about two destinies. Verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they get eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, that, they get wrath and indignation. And then they talk about which people are in each of those groups. And the answer, Paul's own answer at the end of chapter three, in chapter 3 is, there are no people in the first group and everybody is in the second group. Okay? So what's the destiny of all mankind? Wrath and indignation. Apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. All right. He goes on in verse 18 of chapter 3. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and every man may be accountable to God. In fact, that all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law will no flesh be justified, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God closes every mouth and He leaves all the world with nothing to say to Him because we are all lost and dead in our sin apart from His grace. Chapter 3, verse 18 goes to the root of mankind's failure that leaves us with absolutely no defense before God. The way, it, the way Paul puts it in 3.18 is there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the same root of sin that he talks about in chapter 1 and verse 21. And I have to tell you, if you want to know what God says about what's wrong with mankind, there is no verse that is more foundational to that answer than Romans 1.21. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Even the two human beings who knew God intimately, personally, and before sin ever entered the world, messed up because they refused to honor Him as God and give thanks. This all started with the very first sin. God had given Adam and Eve everything that constituted life and well-being. They lacked absolutely nothing. And the way to remain in that amazingly blessed condition was very clear. Let God tell you what's true and let God tell you what you need and trust Him. Believe His Word, not your Word. But even though Adam and Eve knew firsthand the steadfast love and goodness of their Father and His boundless, boundless kindness toward them, 
They burned with desire to get their hands on the one and only thing in all of his creation that he had withheld from them. That thing was so beautiful and it was so desirable to them that they just could not live without it. And Satan told them that if they laid hold of it, they'd be like God, knowing good and evil. Rather than honoring God as God and, and being thankful, grateful for all that God had lavished upon them, they resolved to be like God, knowing not just the good that God had showered upon them, but knowing both good and evil. And in a very twisted way, what Satan promised them is what they got. They came to know evil firsthand. And mankind ran with that knowledge. All you have to do is go a few verses later. Everything after that, really. But, but a few chapters later in chapter 6, when God looks down upon mankind, it says every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. What they lost on that day was exactly what God told them they would lose. Life. Which is relationship with God. That fatal choice proceeded from one catastrophic failure. They did not honor God as God or give thanks. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Out of hearts consumed by arrogance and ingratitude, they exalted themselves over God and their word over God's word. And that, friends, is the root of all sin and of every sin. And when humility before God and gratitude toward God are cast aside, the disaster that follows is guaranteed. Paul proceeds to lay out for us what that disaster looks like. This is what that disaster looked like in real history at the global level for all humanity, and this is what that disaster still looks like in the individual life of every human being who persists in refusing to honor God or to give thanks to God. It takes the form of three fatal exchanges. When mankind refused to honor God as God or give thanks, the first exchange that we, human beings, embraced was that we worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. In verse 23, Paul says that mankind, quote, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Two verses later, verse 25, Paul says, we worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, which creature pervaded man's worship of creatures as gods? Well, it's no accident that the first image listed that men created is in the form of corruptible man. Here's a, a rendering of some of the gods of Egypt. This is just one example. Some of them have human heads. Others have the heads of animals. Horus and Khonshu both have the head of a falcon. Sobek has the head of a crocodile. Sekhmet, the head of a lioness. Taweret, the head of a hippopotamus. And Thoth, the head of an ibis. But notice what all those images have in common. They're all bipeds. They all have a torso that is styled after the human body and stance. Whatever form people assign to their self-created gods, 
Make no mistake, the central object of sinful man's affection, adoration, and worship has always been man. When you make your own gods, who are you worshiping? Yourself. The first and fatal exchange was that we exchanged the glory of the worship of God with the worship of man. The second fatal exchange is at the beginning of verse 25. Verse 25, Paul says, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. At the very beginning of this indictment, in verse 18, Paul said, men suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They, they knew the truth. It had been clearly revealed to them, and they shoved it under the rug. Now look back there for a moment at verses 18 to 20. And I, want to, I just want to drive home what I've already said. We must not miss the fact that over and over and over, Paul says this is not ignorance of the truth. This is suppression of the truth. And what makes him so certain of that is precisely that that which God has made known about himself, he has made known clearly. Now, let me, let me kind of draw a little distinction here. The intimate personal knowledge of God cannot be had apart from His written Word, special revelation. General revelation, that which is, that which is known about God through creation, is not sufficient to save. But it is absolutely sufficient to condemn. You know why? Because when men behold what God has revealed about Himself in creation, they reject it, starting with Adam. God has made certain things about Himself known to all men through what has been made. And that knowledge, while incomplete, is crystal clear. It's clear enough that it's not merely knowledge of God revealed to men, it is knowledge of God revealed to the hearts of men and in the consciences of men, if you read into chapter 2. The more, friends, the more that mankind has discovered about God's creation, the more vivid and compelling has become the knowledge of God that He has made known to men through that creation. It's no coincidence that so many of the modern defections within the scientific community from an atheistic, mechanistic view of creation have come in the realm of molecular biology. The more science has discovered about the sophisticated micro-machines that function even within single-celled organisms, the more undeniable has been the intelligence that underlies those amazing machines. We see in all of nature the order and purposefulness and divine genius of God. We see the compassionate provision of God for all of His creatures. And when we investigate the human organism, we see layer upon layer of powerful redundancies and protections. We see bodies that are fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving and merciful Creator. Friends, humanity did not just miss the truth. It wasn't confusion or insufficient information that brought about our rejection of the truth of God, it was and it still is truth suppression that drives men to reject the one true God. 
for every soul of man that has been humbled by God to simply behold what God has revealed about Himself, both in His creation and in His Word, the evidence of God is absolutely undeniable. But apart from the redeeming work of God through Jesus Christ, there's no such thing as a man who is humble before God. When either desires or behaviors drive beliefs, the first and bloodiest casualty is truth. Let me say that again. When either desires or behaviors drive beliefs, the first and bloodiest casualty is truth. And that is the path upon which every created human being since Adam starts this earthly life. We shove the truth under a rug so that we may hold fast to our precious self-indulgence and to the self-worship by which we justify that self-indulgence. Professing to be wise, we are fools. Man's first fatal exchange was that we exchange the worship of God for the worship of self. Man's second fatal exchange was that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And our third fatal exchange is that we, we exchanged God's design for His creation with our design for His creation. And the specific outworking of that third fatal exchange that Paul zeroes in on in this passage is one that absolutely pervades the culture of the world. We exchange the Creator's design for sex with man's design for sex. And things got really weird really fast. In a passage that ends up listing more than 20 condemning sins practiced by those who refuse to honor God as God or give thanks, why do you think Paul devotes so much verbal real estate here in verses 26 and 27 to the particular sin of homosexual sex? Is it because that sin is more damning, more condemning than the numerous other sins addressed in this chapter? I think not. In fact, it is the list of more than 20 sins at the end of the chapter that is the culmination of Paul's account of the decline, the progressive moral degradation of man. Verses 26 and 27, I believe, are more about the cause of God's giving men over to sin than they are about the worst expression of that sin. I believe here's the reason that Paul camps out on, for two verses on the sin of homosexual sin. I believe it's because that particular sin denies God's design for mankind at the most foundational level of that design. Unless your Bible has very large print, you'll find that design laid out in the first two pages of your Bible. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2 verses 24 and 25 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That perfect and perfectly binary design for human gender and human sexuality couldn't be any clearer than it is. 
Jesus referred to it in Matthew 19 to rebuke the Jews for demeaning God's sacred design for marriage through their many divorces of convenience. Paul referred to that passage in Genesis 1 and 2 in 1 Corinthians 6 to rebuke Christians for their distortions of that design through premarital sex, adultery, and homosexual sex. Now, I want to take just a few minutes here to comment on the strenuous efforts by some in our generation to twist what Paul says here in Romans 1, verses 26 and 27. Because forewarned is forearmed. When I was a young believer in college and the gay rights movement was in its infancy, I examined the assertions of a denomination known as Metropolitan Community Church. Some of you have heard of it. At that time, it was most established in San Francisco and Los Angeles, but it was gaining steam all over the country. Today, MCC congregations number more than 200 in more than 37 countries. MCC was the first self-proclaimed Protestant, Christian, evangelical denomination to construct a supposedly biblical theology of sexuality in which God was just fine with homosexual sex. Their theological experts come very reliably from the most ultra-liberal seminaries in existence that have historically taken the very lowest view of Scripture that exists among professing Christians. One of them is at Mockingbird and Central. If you think that what's coming out of Perkins Seminary is not heresy, you need to go read what they're teaching. On the MCC website, they boast of their cutting-edge theological exploration. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. If you have time and haven't heard it, listen to that 20-minute message, Five Truths About Truth, from the, from the congregational meeting. Truth is really, really old. Because God has existed from all eternity. And all truth is from God alone. The hermeneutics of this group, MCC, are not just sloppy, they are willfully dishonest. If they were even the tiniest bit consistent in employing their principles of interpretation to the entire context of any passage of Scripture, they would end up justifying not only homosexual sex, but incest, bestiality, extramarital sex, adultery, murder, greed, malice, slander, and a long list of other sins that those same passages clearly condemn along with homosexual sex. You cannot make God a party to sin without lying. So they create elegant-sounding lies and they provide plenty of footnotes that they claim support those lies, but guys, they're still lies. On the mccchurch.org website right now, you'll find an article titled, Homosexuality, Not a Sin, Not a Sickness. In that article, the writer references verse 26 of Romans 1, today's passage. Let me read that verse together with the verse that comes right after it one more time. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Literally in the Greek, for that which is against nature. Remember that phrase. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
The writer of the MCC article boldly says that the Greek phrase against nature in verse 26, quote, does not refer to violation of so-called laws of nature, but rather implies action contradicting one's own nature. Now let me ask anybody here who has spent at least a year of your life studying the Bible at intervals, how many times in the Bible have you seen God endorse a behavior on the basis that that behavior is demanded by the individual nature of a human being? Unless that human being is Jesus. That's as foreign to the Bible as foreign gets. But but the error here, the shameless, bald-faced lie here is actually in the words. The word phusen, or nature, in the phrase against nature is from the Greek word phusikos. And you know what English word we get from that? Physical. Latin got the same word from Greek. It means precisely what the writer of the article says it does not mean. Precisely. You can check out any respected lexicon of Koine Greek, Biblical Greek, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Freeberg's lexicon says that the root Greek word means, quote, belonging to the naturally regulated order of things. Ginsberg says it means in accordance with nature. Danker says that when it's specifically applied to sexual activity, as in this passage, it speaks, quote, of sexual intercourse in accordance with structural design involving male and female. By structural design, what Danker is talking about is which parts fit with which parts and which parts produce babies. It's not rocket science. I find it stunning that plumbers, electricians, physicists, and engineers all over the world still use the terms male and female to describe what fits into what. And everybody knows what they're talking about. But modern humanity has somehow become confused about how the words male and female that served as the basis for all that practical knowledge actually apply to human sexuality. Give me a break! There are thousands of young Christians, beloved, who are being lied to by the institutions that we pay their tuition to go to. And now it's starting in kindergarten. If you don't think that's true, you need to open your eyes and pay attention to what's going on. In kindergarten, our children are being told that they have to pick their gender because it's not determined at birth. There are thousands of young Christians who are being lied to, who are being told by self-proclaimed expert theologians that the Bible teaches the exact opposite of what it very clearly teaches. If we who belong to Christ don't have the courage to stand firm against these blatant lies, no matter what the consequence is to our personal freedoms, then we're throwing our young people to the wolves. This calls for courage. As for me and my house, we will stand with God. Now please hear me when I say this, beloved. There are, please hear this. There are many redeemed saints of God who struggle with same-sex attraction and with high-level discomfort with their own biological genders. 
but who faithfully obey God, either by remaining celibate or by marrying a believer of the opposite sex, as awkward as that seems to them, and by doing sex exclusively on God's terms, exclusively within the Creator's design for sex and marriage. Those dear brothers and sisters who deny their own desires to follow Christ are worthy of our imitation, not of our raised eyebrows. I've been blessed by God to know some of them personally, and that is a blessing. Paul doesn't stop in this passage at presenting mankind's three fatal exchanges. He also tells us how the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against the shameless rebellion of all mankind against God. Three times in response to the three fatal exchanges, Paul says God gave them over. He gave them over. And he's talking again about all mankind. Friends, the most catastrophic thing that will ever happen to you this side of eternity is for God to let you live life on your terms. And that's what God did with mankind, but only for a time. In the urban jargon of our day, the phrase for a minute can refer to a short time or a long time. From God's perspective, whatever happens during the brief vapor of any person's earthly existence is just for a minute. When Paul tells us that God gave us over to follow our own deceitful hearts and lustful desires, we all need to understand that that state of affairs lasts only for a season. And when that season is over, what comes next and for the rest of eternity will be entirely on God's terms. The Christian deconstructionists of our era if you don't know what that means, Google it, very predictably celebrate how liberated they are now that they have finally set aside the oppressive, toxic burden of the Christian thinking and behavior that they were forced to embrace as children growing up in Christian homes. They are free at last to finally live their own lives on their own terms. They uniformly declare that they are happier than they have ever been. But you know what God calls that freedom that they, have, that they are experiencing to live life on their own terms? He calls it His judgment against them for their rebellion against Him. Verse 24 says, God gave them, us, over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Verse 26 says God gave them over to degrading passions, exemplified, not fully encompassed, but exemplified in homosexual acts. Verse 28 says God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And every time Paul says that God gave them over to do what they had purposed to do, that liberation from God-imposed limits on their behavior, made the condition of man far worse than it would have been if God had placed limits on our behavior and enforced them. He's placed limits on our behavior by His declaration of His Word. But for a time, He lets human beings disregard those commands. How is the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Here's how. God lets us have our way. 
for a time. And contrary to the belief of children and fools the world over, being allowed to do whatever you want to do in this life is a judgment, not a blessing. What happened historically when God withheld His gracious limits on our behavior and let us have our way? <laughs> yeah, not good. It's not pretty. Verses 28 to 32, listen. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. God's temporary earthly judgment against mankind for our, our shaken fist against Him was to remove the governor from the engine and to let us run headlong into the sin that we so dearly love. And the outcome has been the unhindered proliferation of every sin that destroys relationship between men and God and between men and men, between people and other people. Take some time to, to look at that list carefully. The sins that show up here are overwhelmingly violations of godly love. Greed, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, arrogance, boasting, disobedience to parents, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. It's no wonder Jesus said that the whole law is summed up in this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. God made us for relationship with Him together with His people. Our sin wreaks devastation on every relationship. And even more perverse than this overflowing cesspool of sin is man's relentless justification of it, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now again, please hear me. For Paul, this was not a self-righteous indictment. And it must never be a self-righteous indictment for us. Paul did not write these words from a place of personal moral superiority. He knew all too well that he himself had been personally a vivid example of the very sins that God condemns here. His heart had been filled with arrogance and murder toward the true people of God and toward Christ whom they worshipped. And many Christians had been sent to their deaths at Paul's personal orchestration before God laid hold of him and gave him a heart transplant on the road between Jerusalem and Damascus. You and I need to know, as Paul did, that this is God's indictment against us. And there's only one solution there is only one solution to our wretchedness and to the wretchedness of all of fallen mankind. And that is 
God's righteousness revealed to and displayed in men through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The one and only way that God's righteousness becomes possessed by and displayed in man is when man is brought into everlasting union with Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness, not ours. And the only way that that ever happens is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Let me read one more time the verses that come immediately before and immediately after God's lengthy indictment against all men in chapters 1 through 3. Just before that indictment, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the pagan, to the Greek. For in it, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Immediately after the three-chapter indictment of mankind are these verses. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been put on display, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift, by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Then he says again, this was to demonstrate, to show off His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, there it is again, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is a magnificent passage. Spend some time in that one. That's the glorious message through which the Holy Spirit gives life to the dead. It's possible to speak that truth from an unloving heart, but the message itself is the fruit of the most perfect love of all. The love of God for all whom He is calling and has called to be His own. The love that He proved at the cross. Heavenly Father, the day is coming very soon when it will be too late for us to speak the truth in love to lost men and women and children. So give us the courage to speak it now without compromise. We ask this in Jesus' incomparable name. Amen.